Our message tonight is entitled, Avoiding Pitfalls. Avoiding Pitfalls. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to enter your word and to, Lord, just bathe in your wisdom and knowledge. Father God, tonight let me not be seen, Lord. Father God, speak from the throne room of grace. Lord, let each person here be given the food that they need spiritually. Father God, let all of us leave this place with a newness of heart and mind because we have been closer to Jesus through his word. This is our prayer in his name. Amen. Original text comes from Thessalonians, one of my favorite books of the Bible. The Thessalonians were very interesting people. These were the, these, this church was one of the churches that lasted the longest after it was established. It was often called the Orthodox Church of Thessalonica because of how long the church lasted. It was the first two books written by Paul. Paul wrote to this church. He wanted to strengthen this church. There was a lot going on at the time. It was an interesting place where a road that ran north and south connected it to southern Greece. And because it was on a bay, it it was a a portal where a lot of trade was done. The people there were, were, were sophisticated. They were educated. Acts 17 tells us that when Paul went there to preach, actually, um, he preached in the synagogues and the Jews did not fully accept. Very few of the Jews did, but many of the Greeks did. This established a very interesting church at Thessalonica because many of them did not have the advantage of knowing Old Testament truths. And so they were very new to to uh, monotheistic religion and, of course, new to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, it was so rough there. The persecution was so serious that uh, the way that we, the way that it is read in Acts chapter 17, actually they got thugs eventually to, to go after, um, those who were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and drive them out of the city. But the Bible says that many of the devout Greeks, not a few, and even many of the women joined the church. So Paul writes, when he writes to this church, he's writing to a church that he understood would have a long-lasting effect in Christianity. So he begins by giving warning. One of the things he realizes that many of them had come out of a pagan lifestyle. He understood that there would be many pitfalls, many traps that the devil would set to try and uh, derail their Christianity. And as we kind of discuss this road uh, map to heaven uh, tonight, it is important, I think, that we talk about the things that can happen on your Christian journey that can cause you to fall off the way. The enemy is working diligently, tirelessly to try and get us to make mistake, to to make us uh, give up on God or turn our backs on God. He works tirelessly to lead us away from God. But I'm I'm pleased to know that we serve the kind of God that does not give up on us, even if we were to give up on him. The scripture says. In verse uh, chapter five, starting at uh, verse four, he says, but ye brethren are not in darkness. 
that that day should overtake you as a thief. You're all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. He says, therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Paul likes this analogy of night and day for the Christian. Jesus uses this even when Jesus even says um, the night cometh. He must he says he must do the work of his father while it is day. The night comes when no man can work. I submit to you that we live in a time of great darkness. I don't know if you, you know, if even when you read the headlines and, and or you or you listen to what's going on in the news, you you realize that we live in a time of great darkness where people are blatantly coming out against God, blatantly coming out against decency, blatantly coming out against the family, against God's word. Even ironically, people inside of Christianity are coming out against the Bible. I find it amazing, and I, and I always wonder when, when even some of our own pastors they go to get uh, doctoral degrees and terminal degrees and and, and these and, and these high level degrees and come back doubting the truths that they had before they went to get educated. It's an amazing thing, and 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 I would submit to you that Harvard and Yale and Princeton, the top three schools in the country, it's interesting because they were all once Christian schools. Yet now they are the seat of the place from which evolution is preached and and homosexuality as normal and 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 on and on. We live in a time of great darkness. And and Paul is saying you've got a choice. You have a choice as to whether or not you will be a children of the day or you will be a child of the night. Whether or not you will accept what God has shared with you, what he has offered you in terms of, of greater truth, or, or whether or not you will believe the lies that man is preaching. It's interesting because now the church is under fire. There's a, a Time magazine, I believe it was the last Time magazine, um, where they had this article on teenagers. And they went through and they, they interviewed a statistically significant number of teenagers, like 13 or 1,400 teenagers about 10 years ago. And then they redid the study now. And it showed on every point the teenagers were less involved in church, less likely to pray, um, and, and, and on and on, every statistic. What was interesting, however, is that the teenagers, the teenagers in this poll, and these weren't Adventist teachers, these were I think just typical American teenagers, almost all said one thing. They did not really respect church that, as they described it, was a popcorn church culture. In other words, the teenagers said, we weren't really looking for MTV at church. So all the more and more the churches seem to want to lower the standard and, and make church more entertaining and put pool tables in the youth rooms and video games and have, have modern Christian music play that sounds like secular music. And, and they think that somehow this will draw in the teenagers and keep them. And, and what this study that, that was showed in Secular Time magazine said is that what teenagers over and over said they really wanted was to be rooted and grounded in God's word. That's powerful. The teenagers decided that. They decided, I mean, just from the poll, and I can say that even working at my church, that the teenagers are not so concerned with church being like the world. The teenagers don't have to come to church if they want the world. 
If they want the world, all they have to do is go to public school. All they've got to do is walk around in their neighborhood. They don't have to, you know, if they want Jay-Z, they don't have to come to church to get Jay-Z or Mace. That's playing on every radio and every car and every uh, in the parking lot of the high school. Why come to church to get it? But somehow they understand something's missing. The scripture says that we must be children of the day, children of light. Why? Because we should reflect the light that Christ is shining on us. Ah, you want to avoid pitfalls? One of the things you must do is you must first make up in your mind which side you will be on, whether you will be of the light or of the darkness. The problem is many Christians try to be a little bit of both. Ellen White warns us, she says that the worst thing you could be is a half-hearted Christian. To be a half-hearted Christian, and I'm paraphrasing, but she says basically that what it does is you do the church no good, and you're not a good, you're not a good church person, you're not a good worldling, but you do for the devil a work that no one else can do. There's nothing more effective in Satan's arsenal than Christians who are part-time worldlings. Why? Because when that Christian falls, when that Christian goes down, when the bad press comes on that Christian, there are many who often, in a domino effect, go down. It makes, uh, you know, because our lives are our former sermon, so when we live a contrary life and our relatives see it, when our neighbors see it and we, we claim to be Christian, but we can't be kind. People say, well, well, I don't want anything to do with that God. I want nothing to do with being a Christian. If being a Christian means I'm going to act like that. You've got to make up your mind. What side are you on? The scripture goes on and, 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 and Paul here says, uh, but let us who are of the, oh, no, verse 7, for they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love. I want to go back to verse 6 and talk about being sober. He says, let us watch and be sober. It's not enough to just watch. You see, a lot of Christians watch. We, we're waiting for the second coming. We're hoping for the second coming. It's not enough to watch. You've got to watch and be sober. Being sober is powerful. Why? Being sober means that your mind is clear. I want to I want to break this down because you see, as Christians, what the devil is trying to do is to in, in, intoxicate you. He isn't simply trying to intoxicate you with with alcohol or cocaine or amphetamines. He's trying to intoxicate you with the world. Now, drugs are one of the most potent way to do that, but you can become intoxicated in the, with the world in a lot of ways by trying to be like the world, by trying to absorb the world, by trying to become famous in the world. But don't be so, but, but you must be sober. Why is being sober important? The pitfall that you must avoid here is taking your focus off of God. That's what drunkenness does. It allows you to not focus upward. You see, salvation is an intellectual process. The Bible in Isaiah 1 and verse 18 says, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. If you're going to know God, you must be able to reason. So the devil works tirelessly to get us drunk. He works tirelessly to, to take away our ability to reason. So Paul says, don't just watch, watch and be sober. 
think clearly. One of the things that happens to many Christians isn't some drastic thing. They don't get into any extreme lifestyle. They just get caught up with the mundane. Everyday life becomes so overwhelming that they become drunk with the world, simply trying to tread water to survive here on earth. I saw I saw a young lady today, a matter of fact, in clinic, and she came in and she was not doing so well. She was having headaches and and she was having some anxiety problems and and she came in complaining that she couldn't catch her breath. She told me her job was very, very stressful and and her, and, her, and eventually her husband came in. She was there by herself first and he's sitting there with her and she smokes and, and she's having she's doing some other behaviors that weren't good for her health. And I, I began to talk to her and I said, well, do you go to church? She said, yes, I go to the rock there in San Bernardino. I said, don't you understand the advantage of being a Christian? You don't have to carry the weight of your job with you. When you're a Christian, you get the you get the you have the opportunity to leave all of those troubles at the foot of the cross. But so many of us are drunk because we are carrying the world's burdens on our shoulders. Jesus says, no, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Take your burdens and leave them at the foot of the cross. But if you try and carry life's problems and solve them for yourself, you will not be sober. You'll become drunk and overwhelmed trying to manage in life. So one of the pitfalls that you've got to avoid is worrying about what other people think. Because a lot of us, a lot of Christians are messed up because we want the approval of men. Paul says, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. I say, he says helmet. Paul connects helmet with salvation here and in Ephesians 6. He's talking about the fact that you must be able to reason. Salvation is a is a reasoning process. He he equates it to a helmet. He says, for God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. God has appointed, not appointed us to wrath but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the pitfalls that happens to many Christians is that they get angry with God. Something bad happens and we get, you know, we, we, we turn on a dime. There's one of the students that's rotating with us right now. Well, she was rotating with us and she, she, she's gone through now. And, and we, she was raised Adventist. She became Adventist. She was about nine or ten years old. And we were talking to her and she said she hadn't been to church in years and she began to tell us some heavy problems that she was going through in her marriage and, and financially and some other things. And I said, you know, why, why don't you just go to, why don't you go to church? Why, don't, why aren't you fellowshipping? She said, I'm mad at God. I said, what are you mad at God about? She began to say all the things her husband did and, and all of the other problems she had in her life and how she blamed God for where all of these things had gone wrong. And because of her, her, her disdain, her anger at God, she left the church and no longer attended church. So, you know, they had her scheduled to come in and do a clinical rotation on Saturday. I said, don't come. You're, you're freed. All I want you to do that day is take your husband and go to church. And I told her a church that I thought she'd like, the church that I thought she'd be fed in, and go to church. She didn't go. She's too mad at God. To sit in his house. 
You see, you can't have that kind of brewing anger. And a lot of us, we, you can get it. And I, and I know, I know where it comes from. I've had deaths in my family. And, and, and last year, November, my, uh, it's the one year almost anniversary. Today's the ninth. My mother's birthday was yesterday and she died one year ago on the 14th of November. I was at the urgent care when I was called and, 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 and I was talking to her and she was telling me how sick she was. She had been battling with multiple myeloma for three years. And when I looked it up when she was first diagnosed in Harrison's and in some other oncology textbooks, it said that the mean survival is three points so many years. So I knew that three years, if she could get through three years and get to four or five years, I knew she'd probably be able to survive. There are those who survive long term. She had multiple myeloma. She called me and, and she was getting bad news. None of the medications were working. She had gone to um, one of our Adventist institutions there on the border of Tennessee and Georgia. Um, Wildwood. And actually, when she came back from Wildwood, she was doing very well. But she was trying to do some of the medicines and some of the Wildwood, and it just wasn't working. She went back to work, which I I warned her, don't go back to work. Stress is part of why you got this disease. She called me and she said, nothing's working. My labs are getting worse. Son, I think I'm going to die. We've got to do something. You've got to get me somewhere else. I began to frantically call Boston, where one of the best multiple myeloma treatment centers were. And they said they'd take her if I could get her from Miami to Boston. But then they said, you know what? If she's as weak as you're saying she is, you won't make the trip. There's, there, we have a branch in Tampa at, at USF. Maybe you can get her there. And I called there and they said they would take her. And so I tried to get on the phone with our oncologist, but he was mad. He was angry that we even wanted to move her to somewhere else. And, and in the final analysis, she, she began to get so sick over the next few days that it was obvious she couldn't go anywhere. The spirit told me, get on a plane, get to Florida. It just turned out I had an extra free leftover ticket from a preaching engagement I was supposed to have and didn't get to. So I was able to get on the plane on that Thursday, land in Miami that Friday, and my brother picked me up from the airport. And my brother's a very tough guy. He, you know, he, he, he hangs with NFL football players and a lot of the rappers. But when they, I've never seen him cry. I got in the car with him and he, tears were coming down his face. And I knew my mother was more ill than I, than, than, than it even had sunken in yet. And he whispered, we went straight from there to the hospital. And, and when I went upstairs, my mother was a hospital administrator. She was actually the administrator for the Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center at the University of Miami, where I went to medical school. She worked, she was an administrator for the hospital she was now admitted to and had been many times in treatment for this disease. When I walked into the room, she was so thin. Her hair had been, was gone because of bouts with chemotherapy. And when I looked at her, I knew that it would take a miracle for her to live. I didn't want to show weakness. I didn't want to cry. I didn't want to get her upset. So I, I held it in and we sat and we talked. She cleared the room and sat myself and my younger brother down and she began to talk to us. She told me how proud she was of me and keep doing God's work and on and on and on. By that night, my mother slipped into coma. A few days, one of my friends uh, went to medical school and actually wound up being her oncologist, and I was able to look at labs. It was about that time that her kidneys began to shut down because of the proteins from the disease that were trying to get through her kidneys. Her kidneys were constantly being damaged. That night, and so, you know, I, I, start, we, you know, I started to pray, and I remember before she was slipping out, I was still able to conversate with her. I, I, I got to a point, I'm talking about not getting angry with God. I got to a point that night where 
I was questioning God. You know, Lord, my mother's 53 years of age. She's still a young woman in today's time. She could live another 30 years. She's been so faithful to you. Why would you take her? I got so hurt and angry that at times I'd have to pull into the bathroom of her, of her, of her room at the hospital and, and, and fall on my knees and ask God for strength. And, I, and one time, the last time I did that, I slipped into the bathroom and I fell on my knees and I said, God, I cannot do this. I said, God, I don't have the strength. I, I can't work this out. I can't watch my mother die who raised me by herself. Too much, too much of the family was relying on me to be strong, to answer all the questions from a medical standpoint, to be a spiritual guide like a pastor. And I said, Lord, it's too much. And on my knees in the bathroom as I was weeping and agonizing with God, it was as if God's spirit fell on me. And, and the impression I was given was the impression that said, do not be afraid. Do not be upset. It was as if the Lord spoke to me and said, your mother has been perfected. She's ready. The time is now. She, 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 she's, she's ready. Why would you hold her back from going to sleep in me? And it was as if I could feel the spirit of God come around me like angels lifted me. I just felt buoyed up in the spirit and I stood up on my feet and I wiped the tears from my eyes. And I just said, Lord, give me the strength to be the kind of Christian that is a witness even in the darkest hour. I walked back out and I prayed with my mother. That was the last time I was able to conversate with her where she was lucid and able to speak. By that night, she went deep into coma. She was having uh, abnormal breathing, and, and I knew it wasn't going to be long. They started to turn up the pain medicines. And as we were there, there were none of her pastors from her local church in Miami. She had like two churches, really, that she regularly attended. And no, none of the pastors were there. But it was as if the Spirit said to me, anoint her. I turned to my Aunt Doreen. Now there's just family, all of us family in the room. My mother had... Uh, six brothers and sisters. Um, there were seven of them. So there were a lot of cousins and, and uncles and aunts and people in the room. And it was the spirit that anointed. So we were going to have e Sabbath evening worship that Friday night. And, and I told my Aunt Doreen, who's a nurse, I said, why don't you go to the nurse's station and get a bottle of olive oil and let us anoint her. Somebody in the room said, no, wait, her pastor will come tomorrow after church. I said, I'm not waiting for anybody. We're going to anoint her now. And my aunt went and came back and said, the nurses said they have no oil, no olive oil. I said, no, this is a hospital. I know the nurses cook. There's olive oil back there somewhere. Sure enough, she came back with a bottle of olive oil with just a touch in the bottom of the bottle. I said, that's enough. Turned it over and, then, you know, it took a long time for that little bit to run all the way down. But it touched my fingers as if the Lord, as if the spirit was saying, that's it. all you need is just a little bit. We circled around her favorite hymn was, what a friend we have in Jesus. And we began to sing the song and, and I began to agonize with God, even as we were holding hands circled around her bed. And I began to pray to God and said, Lord, if, if this is really what is right for her, if this is really her time, Lord, show me. 
let me know that she's all right with you, Lord. We finished singing and I, I began to pray. I prayed like I never prayed before, pleading with God for healing. And as we were, as I was praying, my mother, who had not said anything in hours, the last words I would hear her say, she opened her mouth and she said, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I believe. I believe. And it was as if God said, is that enough? Evidence that even as she dies a painful death, she thanks me and she believes. Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you that if you allow the devil to, he'll confuse you. He will cause you to think that pain and difficulty and suffering are, are God, is God trying to, to torture you or, or mess you up. And, and you'll think that God is, is leaving you. When, when what I learned in that situation as I, as I watched my mother die, literally watched her die, I learned that God shows up in the storm like Jesus on the boat. When the disciples awoke him and said, don't you care that we perish, master? Jesus always said to them, oh, ye of little faith. I want you to understand you don't serve a God that disappears when life gets difficult. You don't serve a God that when your job is on the line and they're going to fire you or you can't find a job where you're flunking out of school or you can't afford school. Your parents are going through a divorce, young people, or or your marriage is in trouble, married people. You don't serve a God who packs up and moves on when you get into trial. The contrary is true. If in the most difficult times you fall on your knees and call on the name of Jesus, I have learned that he shows up in your situation. I've learned that when you feel most alone, he is often most present. And I tell you, the the, the story ended very powerfully. The last thing she told to her best friend, Marvell, was that she wanted everyone to wear white at the funeral, white linen. The whole family went and bought white linen. The only people that were in black were people who weren't around to know she wanted us all to wear white linen. So the whole front half of the church, everyone was dressed in white linen. And I'm telling you that the Miami Temple Seventh-day Adventist Church has never had a funeral like that one. We praised God for about two hours, singing praises to his name and and giving testimonies of, of the love my mother showed to many of them and of the goodness of God. I delivered the eulogy at my own mother's funeral and and the spirit impressed me to make an altar call and around her casket, 30 something young people gave their lives to Jesus Christ. I'm telling you that you don't serve a God. That when it seems like the Philistines are upon you. When and the enemy is about to surround you and win like 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 Elisha told his servant, Lord, touch his eyes. When God touches your eyes and they're open, you can see the fiery chariots. And I know on earth it seems like the enemy has you surrounded sometimes. Sometimes the enemy might seem like they are of your own household. But I praise God tonight. There's no reason to be angry with God. That's a pitfall you never need to have. That's a hole you never need to fall into. 
Remember that God loves you with an infinite love. And ironically, God allows us to go through some things, some persecutory situations, some trials, some some difficulties. Why? Because it is through trial and sometimes difficulty that that our souls are tested and our characters are purified. I can tell you one thing. Never again will I look at planet Earth the same. After I watched my mother die, it changed my view of this world. I I see this world for what it really is. This is a dark and evil place. And it doesn't matter how much money you get. That pitfall shouldn't work. It doesn't matter how much money you get. Money can't protect you from death. Money can't cause your children not to get ill and die of a disease. Money can't protect you from 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 uh, being murdered in the streets or, or, or having someone you love be murdered in the streets. Bill Cosby, as rich as he is, his son was murdered in the streets of Los Angeles. Money can't do that. The only hope you have at eternal joy and eternal of peace is if you are resting in Jesus. I see the world differently now. So it doesn't matter what I have what I don't have. Doesn't matter if I am a billionaire or if I am a pauper. All I know is that I am on a journey and all I need to do, as it says in Matthew chapter uh, 24 and verse 13, all I need to do is to endure to the end and be saved. Because I'm telling you, I've learned this earth is not my home. And when you learn that lesson, You're free to be a Christian. You're free to sign up not to be a part or a citizen of this kingdom. You are now free to become a citizen of the kingdom of God. When you realize that this earth in all of the troubles and problems, you see, we had this big election and they shift and, you know, people are making this big to do that. We went from more Republican to more Democratic. The Christian who studies his word knows doesn't really matter that much because what we're waiting for right now is for the for the lord to descend on this earth the prophecies are all filling up we'll talk about that uh either tomorrow night or sabbath morning the prophecies are being fulfilled and what we're looking at as christians isn't what political party is in control what we're looking at now is that jesus is about to return And I don't know about you, but I can't wait to look up and see that cloud the size of a man's hand. And as it draws close, it is a cloud of angels and upon a throne sits Jesus and the trump of God sounds and and you hear the shout of the voice of the archangel. And and I want to be there when 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 my mother's grave is opened. And in the newness of her flesh. Prettier and, and, and stronger than she ever was before. She comes from that grave and is risen. And I could watch her ascend to be with Jesus. Well, I don't know about you, but I can't wait for that day because, see, I'm going to be ready to fly too. And I can't wait till gravity no longer has sway on me. And I'm able to leave this earth and be rejoined with my my grandfather and my mother and and many others who I loved and knew in this earth. I I, I want to be able to get to that point and to be reunited with them. Yes, but but I want to see Jesus. So when you're trying to avoid pitfalls in your Christian walk, I'm telling you, 
Never forget, this earth is not your home. You're a Christian. You're a son or a daughter of the living God. And God has prepared a place for you. As every head is bowed and every eye is closed. Father God, we thank you. Because Lord, even in the most difficult times and in the most difficult hour, we serve the kind of God that does not leave us all by ourselves. Lord, you have called us to be children of light, not to be asleep, to watch and be sober, and to not be angry with you, Lord. Father God, remind us daily that this earth is not our home. Remind us daily that we serve a God who will not at any time abandon us. As long as, Lord, we are striving towards you and seeking you, Lord, Lord, you will take 5,000 steps for every half step we take. For Father God, you love us with an infinite love. Father God, there's someone under the sound of my voice tonight who needs to remember that. There's no love on earth that can match the love of God. Jesus, when you come again in the clouds of glory, I ask that you would remember each of us. Father God, on that day, you would say, this is my beloved son. This is my daughter. Enter into the joys of what I've prepared for you. Give us newness of life now, we pray, sweet Jesus. Let the church say amen and amen.